0: Jeffrey, can you give us a two line log line for your film, please?
1: Boulevard, a Hollywood story is about three people, Gloria Swanson, Dixon Hughes and Richard Stapley, and how they teamed up to write a musical version of Sunset Boulevard, which Gloria Swanson had starred in years before. And uh, strange things occur during the writing of this musical that was never actually produced.
0: Hi, everyone. This is Ken Jacobson, and I want to welcome you to this episode of Top Docs. Boulevard, a Hollywood story, had its world premiere at OutFest Los Angeles in August 2021. Since then, it has screened at many festivals, including Out on Screen, Vancouver Queer, Film Out San Diego, Out on Film Atlanta, the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival, and the Florence Queer Festival in Florence, Italy. The film's producer, Jeffrey Schwartz, is an Emmy Award-winning producer, director, and editor based in Los Angeles. Jeffrey has made numerous films, including The Fabulous Alan Carr, Tab Hunter, Confidential, the Emmy Award-winning HBO documentary film Vito, about the author of The Celluloid Closet, Vito Russo, I Am Divine, about John Waters' Cinematic Muse, and Spine Tingler the William Castle story. Jeffrey's the recipient of the 2015 Frameline Award, which honors those who have made a major contribution to LGBTQ representation in film, television, and the media arts. As a huge fan of Sunset Boulevard, this documentary was a real delight for me. And it was a lot of fun to talk to Jeffrey about the making of the documentary. I knew nothing about this story of the making of the musical, so hearing about this love triangle added layer upon layer to the story of sunset boulevard it just never ends it's the onion that you could peel forever one thing i really appreciated about jeffrey's storytelling was the way that he mixed tones so it's a primarily a light film but there are these darker tones that come into it he's not afraid to explore the depths of Richard Shapley's career, as well as the sadness that kind of hangs over especially Richard's career, but Dixon's to some extent as well. It's also a great exploration of the nature of failure and moving on, and I think that's something we all can relate to. There's just a lot here besides just this great story of this musical that never got made. As a huge fan of Sunset Boulevard, I thoroughly enjoyed Jeffrey's documentary. It was also a delight for me to talk to him and learn more about how he made the film and going into the archives, just how he pulled all this together. I knew nothing about this story of the ill-fated musical about Sunset Boulevard, One of the things I really appreciated about the film is that it's primarily a pretty light film, but Jeffrey really masterfully brings in these darker layers and it becomes a bit of a meditation on aging and what it means to be a failure at something that is extremely important to you and you give your heart and soul to and lessons about moving on and about love. So it's really a delightful and rich film. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I would like to dedicate this episode to all those wonderful people in the dark who have listened to and followed our Top Docs podcasts. And now my conversation with Jeffrey Schwartz about Boulevard, a Hollywood story. Jeffrey Schwartz, welcome to Top Docs.
1: I am very happy to be here. You have had quite a lineup of incredible filmmakers on your show, and I'm
0: honored to be among them. Thank you so much. And I'm honored to talk to you today. It's been a few years. I've missed you. Vice versa. Nice to see your face <laughs> and hear your voice. Jeffrey, why do you make documentary films?
1: That is a great question.
0: It's not one that
1: I probably can answer in just a few sentences, but I am just drawn to stories from from the past that relate to the times we're living in now, I'm drawn to people from the past that are in danger of being forgotten, people who contributed in different ways, people with larger than life personalities. And I feel that we have sort of a collective amnesia as a society and that we tend to forget. The great thing about documentaries is that it's a way for these people to be remembered and celebrated and also educate and entertain an audience. But primarily my motivation is to provide pleasure for an audience and to entertain. So I really look at my films as entertainments and if folks can learn something along the way, that's an extra bonus.
0: How did you first hear about the story of Gloria Swanson, two gay songwriters and the making of a musical about Sunset Boulevard?
1: Before I even saw the movie Sunset Boulevard, when I was a kid, I remember seeing the Carol Burnett sketches where she plays sort of a Norma Desmond-type character, and it was hilarious. I didn't even know that it was a spoof of a movie at that time. And then later, I saw Sunset Boulevard with Gloria Swanson, and I just fell in love with it. It's still my favorite movie, even after seeing it 7,000 times and making this documentary, I still love it. But I never had heard about this story about Gloria Swanson attempting to make a musical version of Sunset Boulevard. This is something that really wasn't done. Now it's pretty common. So many movies now get the musical treatment. But in the 50s, that was not common. And particularly for a movie like Sunset Boulevard, which is so dark and cynical. You, know, you don't really expect the characters to start singing all of a sudden. But I read a great book called Close-Up on Sunset Boulevard by Sam Staggs, a very thorough book about the making of Sunset Boulevard. And there was a chapter in there about Gloria Swanson's attempt to musicalize the film. And I just couldn't believe it. It was such a great story because... It's a failure, first of all. It never really happened. She had engaged these two songwriter composers to collaborate with her, who were also a gay couple. During the course of the writing of the musical, she fell for one of the guys, and the story of the writing of the musical started to mirror the story of Sunset Boulevard more and more. I felt that this was such an engaging, fascinating, weird story that had to be told in the form of a documentary. And in this chapter, uh, a man named Alan Eichler was mentioned as a friend of these two gentlemen in their older age. I know Alan Eichler, and I called him up and said, I need to know everything you can tell me about this. First thing he said to me was, I've been waiting 25 years for somebody to call me, because he was sitting on this incredible story. He was friends with Dixon Hughes and Richard Stapley. And in fact, Dixon Hughes, one of the two composers, he had written his own show about the making of the musical that he performed in a sort of cabaret setting in the 90s. And Alan produced this show. So he had all this paraphernalia from that show and he had all the stories and that opened the door. Alan introduced me to another guy named Stephen Bach and Stephen is friends with Richard Stapley. Stephen actually was so fascinated with this story and Richard's life that in the early 2000s, he sat Richard down to tell the story as well. So between these two guys, they provided me with all of this information and then also archival material. So the interview with Richard Stapley that's used throughout the film, that's thanks to Stephen Bach, his friend, who had the foresight to sit Richard down and get it all on tape. That was about seven or eight years ago when these first conversations started to happen. The film that we ended up making, it's so different than what I originally imagined because it really became more about Richard and Dixon. Gloria is certainly important, but it's really about these two guys. You asked me earlier why I like to make films, why it's important to me to make films. Richard and Dixon That's a great queer love story there. And this happened in the 50s when our relationships and our love that we have for each other couldn't really be celebrated openly. So I'm fascinated to learn more about these sort of hidden histories and people from the past that couldn't tell their own stories for one reason or another, really, because of homophobia and the closet and the danger there, especially in the 50s. And now we're in a different time. And I felt like I could take the story out into the light and have people come to know and appreciate these two gentlemen who were not super famous or well-known in their own lives and would never have been able to tell their own story as frankly as we are able to do it now.
0: The discovery of the box marked Richard Stapley in the attic of Stephen Bach's office, to me, it seemed like the key moment where it's like, okay, now there's a film here, because there's the videotapes of the interviews that were done with him. Was that Kind of the moment where you realize this isn't just a great story, but I can actually make this a film, a visual presentation.
1: Absolutely. When I first heard about the story, I started to think about it in terms of a scripted film and was moving along in that area as scripted. But then as I was doing the research, these things started to surface. Richard's memorabilia, the videotapes of the interview with Richard, I found an audio, a long audio recording of Dixon telling his side of the story. I connected with Gloria Swanson's granddaughter and she helped me to access Gloria Swanson's estate and her archive at the Harry Ransom Center. And then at the Harry Ransom Center, I discovered all these audio tapes of all the songs that they recorded when they were writing the musical and photographs of the three of them together and all this amazing stuff. And then discovering the fact that Richard had been married a couple of times and that his second wife was still alive. I tracked her down and did a long interview with her. So it just kept going in these amazing directions. It needed to be a doc. I was making the film and never intended to be in the film myself, but I was working with a collaborator, Elijah, an editor friend of mine, who really suggested maybe you should put yourself in the film and maybe you should show the process of tracking all this material down and show the physical materials. And I thought that was such an interesting idea because as filmmakers, this is what we do. We are sort of archaeologists. And I thought it might be interesting to expose that side of things a little bit and have the audience go on the journey of discovery along with me.
0: Absolutely. When you find that box and plunk it down on the table, we're right there with you. We can't wait to open it. I, I wanted to start with your pre-title sequence, which I think is just, it's really masterful. It sets the stage brilliantly and, and just pulls us right into the story from the get-go. You cover a lot of narrative ground and you present a lot of different visual material from old TV, black and white TV footage of Gloria Swanson to a clip from the movie Sunset Boulevard. There's animation in there and just many different types of material. And you also give us a lot of backstory about Gloria Swanson and her reasons for wanting to make a musical and even introducing this love triangle, as it were. So how did you decide how much of the story am I going to front load in this pre-title sequence and... Did you always know that's what it was going to be like, or had you considered some alternate beginnings?
1: That's a great question. When you're constructing something like this, usually the, the opening is the last thing that I do. I had this thought of creating an animated opening as well. I was working with an illustrator named Maurice Vellicoop, and Maurice did all of the animations that appear throughout the film. And I was also working with Grant Mellison, who is a graphic designer. He did all of the sort of motion graphics that appear throughout the film. In the film itself, those are two separate categories, visual sort of language we use. But for the opening, I had them team up together. And so Maurice drew all the illustrations and Grant animated all of that. So I really wanted to grab the audience at the very beginning. The first five minutes of any film is so important, particularly now in the streaming era where the audience isn't sort of paid their money and sitting in a theater and they're never going to just get up and walk out after five minutes. But when you're streaming something, You can, you know, check your phone or hit pause or watch something else. So I really tried to entice the audience in the first five minutes of the film so that they wouldn't dream of changing the channel or watching something else, that they're completely engaged and captivated, hopefully within the first few minutes, and they just have to keep watching. So that was the intention of putting all of those teases of things that will pay off later in the film at the beginning.
0: Talk about the tone you wanted to set up here. You mentioned that entertaining is a key goal here. In terms of genre, I'm curious about the tone you wanted to set. The music, for instance, when it kicks in, it's very propulsive. How did you land on the tone for the opening?
1: People talk about documentaries as if documentary is a genre of itself, and I don't really agree with that. There are so many genres within documentary, and I'd never had really made a melodrama or a musical before. A lot of the films I've done have music in it, but this is really essentially a musical and a melodrama in the sort of 1950s Douglas Sirkian way. And it's also noir because it has the gay underworld a little bit. And it has Gloria Swanson and the femme fatale where she's, you know, Norma Desmond in the movie, but she's also Gloria Swanson. And they're two very different characters, but there's a lot of similarities there. So I did feel that it's sort of a, a melodrama. It's a romance. It's a love story the forbidden love story. It's a little bit of a thriller. There's a mystery there. These are all reasons that I wanted to make this movie because I felt like it would just be so much fun to make it. And particularly working with the animation, there's a way that you can tell the story visually and try to recreate that time period. And Maurice Vellenkoop, who, who did all the illustrations, he was just the perfect guy for this. And he snuck in all of these sort of visual references like the first time that you see Gloria Swanson appear when the guys go to meet her, her outfit, she's wearing an outfit that Rosalind Russell wears in Auntie Mame. You know? So there's all kinds of in-jokes and pleasure for the audience. Even if you don't know that's the outfit that Rosalind Russell wore in Auntie Mame, it's just still great to look at. It's still visually great. For people who love old movies, Sunset Boulevard is a classic, but it's what, how many years old is it now? Sixty, More than 60 years old? And what more can you say about this? So I loved that now when people see this movie in the future, there'll be this whole other way to appreciate it, that people will know more about Gloria Swanson herself because we were talking earlier about this collective amnesia. Like people don't know who Gloria Swanson is, believe me. And if they know anything about her, they might know the image from Sunset Boulevard, if they've even seen Sunset Boulevard, but they don't know that this actress who's in the movie is not that character, even though there's so many similarities. So that was another reason I thought it would be interesting that you can... Talk about Gloria and show what an interesting dynamic ahead of her time woman she was. That she produced her own movies when women were really not doing that. She was interested in so many things like organic food and yoga and health. And she was obsessed with sugar and looked at sugar as a poison. Now these are sort of mainstream ideas. But when she was talking about this stuff, people looked at her as a little bit eccentric, a little bit of a kook. But she definitely was not. She was very smart. That's another reason I wanted to do this is to celebrate her.
0: I think you mentioned you've watched Sunset Boulevard maybe 7,000 times. It's one of my all-time favorites, too, as is Billy Wilder, the director. At what point in this process did you go back to the source material, watch the film, knowing you were going to make this documentary, and which scenes just jumped out at you as, oh my god, this so much reflects the real life story of Gloria, Dick, and Richard?
1: Sunset Boulevard is the story of an older woman who encounters a very handsome younger man who she hires to write a movie for her. And during the course of the writing of the movie, she starts developing feelings for him. And that's exactly the plot of this documentary. Gloria hired Dixon and Richard. Richard is a very handsome younger man who knew that he was handsome and sometimes used that to move himself forward in the world. The feelings that Gloria had for Richard weren't necessarily reciprocated. Richard knew what was going on, but he didn't put a stop to it. And Dixon also knew what was going on, but he didn't put a stop to it either. Because this was going to be their bread and butter. Aside from the fact that they were bewitched by this glamorous movie star, this was also a great opportunity for them. And in Scented Boulevard, the movie, pretty much the same thing happens. So it was really fun for me to watch the movie again, and discover all these parallels to the story that we're telling in in the documentary, and then also use clips from the the film within the doc to comment on the action. Richard very hilariously talks about Gloria and him going to Paramount to try to get the rights to the movie. I was able to use the famous scene of Norma Desmond driving up to the gate of Paramount to try to get Cecil B. DeMille to make her next film. Whenever I needed something from Sunset Boulevard, it was always there. The parallels were really striking and it made me think you know Richard he's a raconteur and a great storyteller and kind of a mysterious guy and I wondered how much of this did he actually make up <laughs> but then I heard Dixon's side of the story and he told the same story so in fact it was true but I kept thinking like can this really be true It's just too strange. And there's just too many parallels with Sense of Boulevard. But then going into Gloria's archives and discovering the photos of the three of them together. When I first saw a photo of the three of them together in Palm Springs when they were writing the musical, I couldn't believe it because that was proof that they were friends, they knew each other, and that this actually did happen.
0: One of the things that occurred to me as a difficult task on your part in watching the film was you're marrying these two different narratives. One is the video interview with Richard, where he's talking about certain events. And then you have this phone call that was made to Dixon while he was living in Palm Springs, and he's going over many of the same events. Somehow you're able to put this together and tell one cohesive and consistent story.
1: That's really true. And then also I have more information than they have right? And I'm telling the story in the 21st century. So when Richard is sitting down to do his interview, he's very cagey about certain things. Like you can see the interviewer asks him about how he met Dixon Hughes, and he just gets very uncomfortable and he doesn't want to answer the question. So he was still in his, at that point, late 70s, early 80s, he was still holding on to that. He was still a prisoner in a way of the closet. And he never really got into his real story. Even his autobiography, which his friend Stephen gave me access to an unfinished autobiography. But he doesn't really talk about the dynamic between him and Dixon, even there. So the um, necessity to protect himself and that he couldn't expose his true nature or talk about his sexuality in any way, that was still there. Both of those guys were a product of their times. Now, Dixon did end up telling his side of the story when he did his cabaret show, where he did talk about the relationship he had with Richard. But It was also still very cagey. That was the early 90s. And I think it was still highly unusual to talk about your sexuality, especially for older gentlemen like Dixon and and Richard. But now we can do that. Now we can talk about these things. Richard's wife, who I tracked down in England, they never actually were divorced. And she was fully aware of his sexuality. She was fully aware that he had relationships with men and women. I don't know how he would have defined himself. He wouldn't have defined himself as gay or bisexual. I don't think he would have defined himself at all. But I found it so fascinating that his wife was fully aware that they had a strong bond and a friendship, but it was not really a love affair. That's not something that you really hear too much about. They used to call them lavender marriages, you know, where a gay man would marry either a straight woman or a lesbian. But you never really heard the woman's side of the story. You heard maybe the woman was being somehow fooled by the guy, like he was getting away with something, but she was fully aware. And I'm sure there were a lot of stories like that where they both knew what they were getting into.
0: Plus, she wanted to stay in England, so she had to marry an Englishman. Exactly. So so it was was a mutually beneficial relationship to some extent.
1: Absolutely. And then Richard, for a short period of time, he went to England and and rejuvenated his acting career. And then he started doing all these spaghetti westerns and these weird kind of James Bond ripoffs that he would film all over the world. And he wasn't a movie star in the U.S., but when he went to Brazil, he was a movie star and they treated him as such. And she went along for the ride and she had a great time. So she had nothing to complain about and she was perfectly happy until things started going south for his career. And they had a very strained and combative relationship later, which isn't really so much reflected in the film, but in my conversations with her, she's took a while for her to decide to even participate and talk to me because she still had a lot of residual anger toward Richard. Because in his later years, she felt like he was taking advantage of her and taking advantage of other people and always sort of scamming people for money. But he had no money and he had no place to live at certain points in his life. It was a sad kind of downfall for him. In a way. And, and he's very much like the Norma Desmond character. Another parallel as he started getting older and was trying to hold on to his lost youth and to his career that kind of petered out because after you hit a certain age in Hollywood, whether you're uh, male or female, things get a little more challenging.
0: That's right. You have to wait for somebody to come along and make a documentary about you.
1: Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um,
0: I wanted to go back to the young Richard Stapley who began his career. In movies, after you've learned about Richard, did you go back and watch those early movies? And if so, what were your impressions of him as an actor and potential movie star?
1: I hadn't realized that I'd, I had actually seen him in movies before because he's in some famous films like Three Musketeers and Little Women, but Bit Parts. So then I went and tried to track down everything he'd ever been in. He never really was in a pure classic. He would rarely play a lead in the early days. He would be sort of supporting actor. When you look at his acting work, there's nothing there that really could show you the range of his talent. He's pretty wooden. And there was always somebody in the movie a little more famous than him or looked sort of like him, like Tyrone Power was the star of one and he was a supporting role. He never really got a chance to show his stuff. He'd done stage in England and he had gone to Broadway, but we'll never know what those performances were like. Then if you look at the later years, he's like a second tier James Bond. He actually would have probably been a pretty good James Bond. George Lazenby, you know, when he did that one James Bond movie, that was around the time that Richard was active in movies. And I could actually imagine Richard playing James Bond.
0: Let's talk about Gloria for a second. Following the success of Sunset Boulevard, she's once again at the pinnacle of her career. But cruelly, because of her age, after all, she's 50. Oh, my God. She's not offered any decent roles in movies. She spends the next few years in New York reinventing herself as an entrepreneur, a successful designer of her own clothing line. What I find interesting is that this post-Sunset Boulevard part of her career basically seems to have been erased from the collective memory of Gloria Swanson. It's like her, her life ended with the movie. Aside from her work on the musical, what surprised you most about her post-Sunset Boulevard professional life?
1: It actually predates Sunset Boulevard a little because she was, you know, a major star, bigger than Lady Gaga, bigger than anybody in the world in the 1920s. And she never was able to make that transition into talkies. She made a few talking pictures, but she never really had a hit picture. And her acting career kind of faded away. But her presence as a celebrity never did. She always made sure that she was still being talked about, even though she wasn't making movies. Sunset Boulevard, in a way, it was a comeback because she hadn't done a movie in a long time, but people still knew who she was. She was very much in the culture. It wasn't like she was hiding away in a crumbling mansion the way Norma Desmond was. She had her own afternoon TV show in the very early primitive days of television. She had a talk show in the afternoons where she would talk to socialites and do like cooking segments and was sort of like an early Martha Stewart. As you mentioned, she had a clothing line. She was on the radio all the time. She was a celebrity for being herself. So when Sunset Boulevard came along, it was a comeback in terms of her acting career, but the public knew who she was. It was just like, oh, wow, she's back in movies again. But then the movie was so strong and the, the characterization was so strong that in the years after, that's all that people wanted her to play. And she was offered other things, but they were all kind of versions of Norma Desmond. And she didn't want to do that. So... She did maintain her celebrity, she, she continued to do TV, she continued to do a million talk shows, game shows, she had her clothing line, she would make personal appearances, she was very much present. But no, there were no roles after that. And so that was part of the motivation to do the musical because she loved the character so much and she loved the experience making Sunset Boulevard. She did say on the set, if only I can do this every night every day, and so doing Sunset Boulevard, the musical would have been a way to revisit that, but also she had her own ideas about the character. She disagreed with Billy Wilder on certain things about the character. She's not the main character of Sunset Boulevard. The William Holden character is the main character that you follow. Norma Desmond is sort of secondary in a way, but in the musical version, she was gonna be the star, and it was all gonna be through her point of view, and she'd be maybe even more sympathetic. So she had a lot of things that she wanted to do. Now she was gonna be the boss not Billy Wilder. So that was something that she was hoping to do in the musical. But as we know, if you've seen the documentary, the musical was actually never produced. But she never let go of the dream of doing it, even in her later life. She was always sort of pining for that musical.
0: So let's get to the moment when the three of them meet. Richard and Dixon go to her house to try to pitch her on an idea for a musical that they have. She's not too keen on that idea, But she suggests an idea of her own, which is this musical of Sunset Boulevard. Richard and Dixon go off to try to figure this out. Richard's the one who has the idea to have a moment at the beginning of the musical to show who this woman, Norma Desmond, really is. Came up with the idea to do a number based on the next to last line of the movie about those wonderful people out there in the dark. So they return to see Gloria... Playing this song was basically their tryout, I think, and they get the job. The question I have is, and, and someone in your documentary raises this question as well, which is, why did she take a risk on these two relative unknowns? She could have gone out there and tried to find two better known lyricists and composers, but she took a chance on Dixon and Richard. Why do you think that is?
1: That's a good question. I think she was charmed by them. You know, they just got along really well. And she could maybe be somewhat impulsive too. I don't think she talked to anybody else. They just showed up in her house one day to pitch a different show. And she liked them and she thought they were talented. And she probably thought they were cute. And she got a kick out of them. She was very sophisticated in business, but she didn't really seem to know too much about the theater and about rights to things. When she went to Paramount to get the rights to Sunset Boulevard, Initially, we were okay with her doing the idea, but as it's revealed in the documentary, that the rights were never really sewn up. So there's some good advice for anybody wanting to musicalize something, get the rights first, get something in writing. But I think she believed in fate, So that might've been one of the reasons why she just decided to go with them. But we'll never know. I have Dixon and Richard telling their side of things and friends of theirs who knew them both. But in terms of Gloria, she never talked about this. She wrote an autobiography called Swanson on Swanson toward the end of her life. And it's a huge book. It's seven, 800 pages where she talks about everything that ever happened there practically, but she never mentions the musical. She doesn't mention Dixon or Richard. And I always wondered why that was, since this was something that took up so much of her time and energy and passion for a long time. But her granddaughter told me that she felt that she didn't write about the musical because it never happened and because it was a failure. But that still doesn't really explain everything because she does talk about other failures in her life marriages and movies that didn't work or money she lost. So I don't know. We'll never really know what her real feelings were. But I I do know it meant a lot to her because she held on to those audio tapes and she would play them at parties. She would play them at cocktail parties, even into the 60s and 70s. So I don't think she ever let go of that dream.
0: Quick follow up there. Why do you think Paramount didn't sell her the rights? When she first approached Paramount, she had a
1: relationship with the person there that she was pitching to because he had been there since the 20s. When they finished writing the show, when she went back to sew up the rights, there was a whole new regime. There are new people there. I found some letters in the archive back and forth between Gloria and Paramount when she asked for finally to get those rights. And the letter back from Paramount said, we're not going to give you the rights. They're not available to you because we're going to start selling our old movies to television. This was like a new thing. And so Sunset Boulevard was part of a package of films that they were going to be selling to television. And they thought that somehow if there was a musical going at the same time, that it would eat into their profitability for the sales to television. Now, I don't know if that's true. Maybe they just wanted to get rid of her. But again, television was sort of the culprit here. Television was the thing that caused Norma Desmond's downfall. She's still big, but the pictures got small. And now television was the thing that prevented her from getting the rights to do the musical.
0: When Dixon plays this song that they've written for Gloria... As their tryout, we then hear Gloria singing the song. It's, well, it's pretty atrocious. She seems (laughs) off key, can't really hold a note. But what I find interesting is nobody ever seems to comment on her singing in the documentary. Was she really that bad?
1: Well, I'll leave that to the audience to decide about the quality of her singing. I mean, Gloria Swanson, no, she was not a singer. But she did have dreams of being an opera singer, even before she became a movie star. She did sing in some of her top movies, but she has a very kind of old-fashioned la kind of voice that does not age well. And her singing in the recordings, and like I said, I'll leave that to the audience to decide. The songs themselves, I don't know that there's a hit among them. Back in the day, the Broadway songs, that was the popular music of the day. And all the pop artists of the time, like Frank Sinatra or Peggy Lee, they would cover those songs and you'd hear them on the radio and they would be big hits. But I didn't hear any songs among this batch of songs, and there's maybe 20 of them or so, that I felt, oh, I can imagine Peggy Lee singing this song. I, I don't know that the songs ever rose to that level of a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, but there is a certain charm to them. It is part of our story is that, no, it doesn't really work. And maybe that's part of the reason why it never really got to that next level. Maybe that's part of why, aside from the rights and other problems that they were having getting this mounted, maybe it was just because the songs weren't all that great. Could Gloria Swanson have done the five or eight shows a week when she had the stamina? She had done theater before, but she'd never done anything like this. So who knows? Maybe there was a certain element of self-sabotage to it. Even though she wanted it to happen, when it all fell apart, she just walked away. And she kind of left the wreckage behind her. And the two guys had to figure out what to do with the rest of their lives. But like I said, I guess we'll never really know what her real thoughts were about all this.
0: We learned that they wrote a full-blown musical with about 20 to 25 songs. How many of those songs exist as recordings?
1: All of them. They would write the songs and they did recordings of them with the most technically advanced recording equipment at the time, the tape recorder, basically. Some of those are on reel-to-reel tapes and some of them are on these records. And all of them are at the Harry Ransom archives in Austin, Texas. We had all of them transferred and I got to listen to everything. They don't just have the songs, but they have actually the dialogue as well. So you can hear all the dialogue. It's maybe like two and a half hours from beginning to end. And you can hear pages being turned and then Dixon at the piano. You don't ever hear Richard. So I don't know if Richard was present for any of those recording sessions. But you hear Dixon and Gloria, they maintained a friendship after the whole thing fell apart. There was a little bit of a diva worship there with Gloria and, and Dixon being the worshiper and Gloria being the worshipped. But I've seen some pictures of Dixon in his later life. And there's an 8 by 10 signed picture of Gloria right up on his wall there, on his desk. So... I think he really treasured that relationship and that friendship. Richard and Gloria never spoke again, though.
0: One of the key moments in the film is when Dixon and Richard go to New York and stay in Gloria's apartment while they're all trying to sell the film, pitch it to producers, and get it mounted on Broadway. And spoiler alert, there's the big scene where Richard looks in Gloria's eyes and thinks he could take her in his arms. But. If he did so, it would be a disaster. And he realizes that this situation is not good. It's detrimental to his relationship with Dixon, and he's losing himself as a person. So he bolts the apartment, goes out on the town in New York City, comes back at 3 a.m. You obviously wanted to depict this visually. And so we have in one of your great animated sequences here showing Richard going out on the town, and where he goes is a gay bar. I wanted to ask you how you made the decision to show where he went, because it's not clear that we have documentary evidence of what happened to him when he left the apartment.
1: Well, that would be dramatic license, I guess. In in doing this animation, I, I definitely wanted to show the gay world of the 1950s, how it was underground to a certain extent and secretive, but everybody was having a really great time. So I imagine, well, where would Richard go in the middle of the night if he wanted to get away from Dixon and want to get away from Gloria? Well, he'd go to a gay bar and forget all your troubles in the gay bar. So that was really fun for Maurice to draw because we thought, well, what does a gay bar look like at that time? So he did did his research. One of the earliest scenes in a gay bar in a Hollywood movie is in a movie called Advise and Consent. There's a scene where a character goes to a gay bar and it's presented as, it's like, oh my God, here we are. They're bringing audience to a gay bar for the first time so he looked at that scene and he recreated certain things from that scene the bartender is actually from that scene and there's some stuff on the wall that's from that scene and then if you look closely maurice himself is drawn in there he put himself in there as one of the patrons of the bar i, I actually would love to go and visit that bar that is from his imagination but that was one of the other things that was just so much fun about making this was is is seeing what Maurice's approach to the characters would be. He drew them in such a beautiful, perfect way, especially Dixon and Richard as young men, but he also captured them in their older age perfectly.
0: I love that sequence. It is a lot of fun to, to go into that bar and... I will have to pull out my copy of Advise and Consent that I have behind me and rewatch oh, yeah. the scene. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let's fast forward. So when Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, Sunset Boulevard, came out and was a big success, it seems like there's no mention in the press of Gloria Swanson's earlier attempts to make a musical. Do you think that Webber and the producers of the musical really didn't know anything about this, or they just kind of conveniently forgot about it?
1: That's a great question. At the time, when Weber's musical came out, that was early 90s. And I don't think there was really much information out there about Gloria's previous attempt. I think probably Movie fans and Broadway fans might've known about this. And there were maybe even bootlegs floating around over the years of some of the recordings, but I don't know if Andrew Lloyd Webber knew and his approach is so different. It's more like an opera. I would love to know, and hopefully I'll get the chance to ask him one of these days if he knew about this previous attempt and what he thinks about the songs, what he thinks about the music. I really don't know. But the amazing thing is that when Dixon decided to do his cabaret version of the story, Glenn Close was opening in Sunset Boulevard a couple miles away in Los Angeles. And now our documentary is out in the world and Glenn Close is talking about doing a movie version of the musical of Sunset Boulevard. So this story never dies. Maybe we'll do a sequel one day and we'll find out what Andrew Lloyd Webber thinks about Dixon and Richard's songs. But I don't think that he has anything to worry about. I don't think there's much competition there.
0: Ironically, this erasure, if you want to call it that, of their earlier attempt to make a musical leads in a kind of circuitous way to what starts out as a confrontation between Richard and Dixon about the production that Dixon is doing in Hollywood of the story of the making of the musical. But eventually, it seems to lead to a rapprochement between them. I found that really touching. Did it surprise you that they were able, after all those years, to basically bury the hatchet?
1: Yeah, I found that really touching. And it's interesting. They were in their 20s, When they were in a relationship together, I know Dixon had other partners after Richard. He had a long-term partner for about 10 or 12 years after these events that we don't touch on in the documentary, but Richard never had another relationship with a man that I know of. So this was a really key relationship, and I think they were really very much in love. And in fact, in the archives at the Harry Ransom Center, there were some love letters exchanged between Dixon and Richard that I was so surprised to see. Not because they existed, but because what were they doing in Gloria Swanson's archive? Richard wrote a love letter to Dixon. I don't know how she got a hold of that. It's very interesting. Anyway, there they are. And so the way Richard talks to Dixon, and this is after their breakup, is very loving and very tender and very regretful of the things that went wrong. I think we all have relationships like that. These are people that, whether the relationship worked out or not, these are people that meant something to us and were very special to us at a certain point in our lives. And sometimes those people can come back into your lives in ways that you don't expect. And Richard came back into Dixon's life at first in a very tense and angry way when he realized that Dixon was telling their story and using their music and Richard didn't have a piece of the action, even though there really wasn't much action to have a piece of. (laughs) It was a small cabaret show in Hollywood. But that was the, the thing that brought them back together. Now, I think there was still always a tension there between the two of them. That they did end up figuring out a way to resolve. That was in the early to mid 90s, and they passed away in the 2000s. And apparently, they were still in each other's lives. And some of their friends did talk about the fact that when Dixon was suffering from Alzheimer's and in a nursing home, Richard was there. He was there for her, Dixon. They did have very tender feelings for each other in their older years, which I found very
0: sweet. You also managed to do something very lovely with your visual team in how you depicted. The scene that Richard describes in one of those love letters. Hats off to you for for creating an illustrated love story there. It's very touching and a great moment in the film. A bittersweet moment. I think you've done as you set out to do, which is create a film that is mostly fun and entertainment and pretty light. But certainly, like Sunset Boulevard itself, it has its dark moments. One of those moments, I would say, is the tragedy of the heavy price paid by those like Richard, who were forced to live their lives in the closet for fear of being discovered and having their careers ruined. As you were making this film, and this is material that you've treated in different ways with other films, what was your thought about the broader takeaway here of Hollywood and its treatment of gay actors and professionals?
1: Well, it's still going on. You know, there's still open secret about certain people in the industry who everyone knows is gay or lesbian or whatever the case may be. There's still a agreement between the press and certain stars not to talk about these things. I'm not interested in who those people are, but what I think the film talks about in addition to the struggles that LGBT people had in the past is the struggles that people who are older have. And I think that's actually gonna be more relevant to a lot of people who see this film because we all get old. And all of these characters in our film struggle with that in one way or another and try to hold on to something from the past that they would probably be wiser to just let go of. But I think as a culture, at least in this country, we don't value our older people. We don't value what they have to contribute, that they're still vital, interesting, dynamic people into their 60s and 70s and 80s and beyond. In Hollywood, there's such a, a sense that, particularly for women and actresses of a certain age, that they're over the hill at, Forget about 50, you know, 30 or 40. So I was just so encouraged to see some recent like movies, those Halloween movies with Jamie Lee Curtis, (laughs) where she's in her, I don't know how old she is now. What is she in her 60s, I think. And she's the lead in these movies and she's kicking butt. And then the new Matrix movie with Carrie Ann Moss, she's 54. And Gloria Swanson was over the hill at 50. And all the press, when you see her interviewed in a lot of these old talk shows, that's all they could talk about is her age. And what, how amazing it is that she's 50 and how she looks so great. And she's still alive at 50. It's just so insulting, but it's not over. and it's still going on. I found it so tragic with Richard because he didn't have anything to fall back on. As he was getting older, he was broke and his living situations just kept getting worse and worse. And he really struggled. And I found that really tragic and sad. And he's not alone in that. I think that's a problem, not isolated to the entertainment industry, of course. But it is something that happens. So many filmmakers and creative people and artists and actors and all kinds of people with something to offer really are are silenced at a certain point because of ageism. That's something that I'm becoming more and more aware of. I'm older than Gloria was in in, in, uh, Sunset Boulevard. And I'd like to continue to be making films and continue to have something to offer as I get older. I don't know. That's something I think people can relate to when they see this film.
0: Absolutely. And I really love the way you explored those themes in the film Without hitting us over the head with them, you kind of snuck them in as a Trojan horse into this relatively light story. But I found it to be a profoundly moving commentary on aging and on the financial insecurity of artists in general, and maybe LGBTQ artists in particular, who were forced to give up income because they had very limited job opportunities and doors closed. To them.
1: And you can understand why Richard felt that he needed to keep that part of himself a secret. He had a macho man image. When he was working as an actor in the 50s and into the 60s, he was playing, you know, cowboys and spies and motorcycle riders. And he was a macho guy in his real life and also on screen. And at that point in time, macho man and gay man were not compatible. So you can understand him wanting to maintain that artifice because it was literally a matter of, putting food on the table for him. He never let go of that, which I found really fascinating. And I I made a film a few years ago about another actor named Tab Hunter, very different kind of story, but Tab was probably of the same generation as, as Richard, maybe a little bit younger, but he was a product of the Hollywood studio system as well. And he was a gay man and he had to keep that side of himself hidden as well until many years later when we made the film where he could finally talk about this stuff. But he was also very hesitant to talk about it. And you can even see in the film, he's squirming when asked certain questions. I never met Richard, but I would love to have met him and gotten to talk to him, frankly, with no cameras around about what what his life was really like. I wonder if he had lived a little bit longer, if he would have been able to more freely express himself.
0: I'm putting you on the hot seat, Jeffrey. Would Boulevard, a Hollywood musical, have been a hit? Wow. Wow. You mean
1: if they had actually been able to get this thing
0: on Broadway? Yes, would it have been as a, hit? a Broadway musical, <laughs>
1: would it have succeeded? That's a great question. Well, you know, they never were able to get this thing on Broadway. Andrew Ledweber ended up doing it many, many years later. Um, I guess we'll never know. I, I don't know that I have an answer to that question, but I would have to say that it might not have been successful. Because the 1950s was the decade of the pajama game and Oklahoma and all these sort of sunny and optimistic musicals. There were musicals that had some darker themes, but not too many. So I don't know that Boulevard would have been very warmly received. It took a few decades for that kind of material to be turned into a musical. When Lloyd Webber did it, it was the right time to do something like that. This is post Sondheim, right? So you could actually do a musical with adult themes and darker themes and sort of tragedy. So I don't know. I'd love to see somebody try to do it one of these days.
0: We like to give people the chance to thank anyone who contributed to the film. Is there anyone you'd like to thank?
1: I had a really terrific team, uh, creative team and producing team. But I I really have to thank John Picardo, who's our producer. And John is somebody I've worked with before, an architect by trade, but loves movies. We became friends about 10 years ago and he started getting involved with my films. And it was really because of him that I'm able to make these most recent films.
0: What's up next for you? I'm working
1: on a new film called Commitment to Life about the AIDS crisis in Los Angeles from the early 80s pretty much until today. How various communities around the city stepped forward to help each other and take care of each other when our government initially was an embarrassing failure. It's a very moving, emotional, powerful story. We are in editing now and hope to have it out on the circuit next year.
0: That sounds very interesting and important.
1: Yes. It's very timely also. We're living through another epidemic, pandemic. HIV, AIDS, the first cases were reported pretty much exactly 40 years ago. So AIDS Project Los Angeles was a organization that formed in the very, very early days. The film really documents the history of that organization and a few other organizations as well, and some of the people that stepped forward in all stratas of LA society to try to stem the
0: crisis. You've made a delightful documentary about the making of this ill-fated musical. Can't let you go away without just saying the word "baby chick funeral."
1: <laughs> Baby chick funeral. Well, that was another one of the really weird parallels from the real life to the Sunset Boulevard movie. Was uh, I don't want to give too much away. No, but let's a scene let's, in, uh, <laughs> let's leave scene that in, to the
0: audience.
1: <laughs> there's a, the monkey funeral. At Sunset Boulevard has a strange parallel to all, our story, so people will know that when they see
0: it. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. I can't wait to go back and see Sunset Boulevard for the umpteenth time with an all-new perspective. I think people will see the film in a different light once they've seen your wonderful documentary. So thank you so much for persisting and telling this story and also resurrecting the careers of Dixon Hughes and Richard Stapley. I think they contributed a lot, and it's wonderful to see a movie doing them justice. So thanks so much for joining us, Jeffrey. and Congratulations. Thank you, Ken. I, I hope the three of them are,
1: are happy wherever they are. I'm sure Richard is happy to get all the attention again. He'd be happy to be back up on the big screen. And I know Gloria would too.
0: Do you have a hidden gem, the film that you've seen that you don't think gets the attention it deserves?
1: One of my favorite docs is one that no one ever talks about anymore. It's called Theremin. It came out in the mid-90s. It's about the inventor of this strange electronic musical instrument and its influence on the culture and the strange life that he and his wife Clara Rockmore had. I loved that film when it came out, and it just has disappeared, and I I really hope more people get to see it. I always look for stories in films that I seek out to watch as a viewer and also films that I like to make, just these stranger-than-fiction kind of stories. Theremin is certainly one of them, and if you hear that instrument, It shows up all over the place in Beach Boys songs and scores of movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still. It's very strange and ethereal. So this is a documentary about the guy who invented that machine.